0: The consensus for years was that between 40 and 60% of the variance in big five traits could be attributable to genetic factors. Most psychologists are hesitant in in putting it that baldly because we know that it isn't a simple direct influence. Rather, the genetic potential is elicited by environmental stimulation, without which it would not emerge and have a consequential impact on the individual's behavior. So that um, you may have a genetic uh, proclivity, propensity, but it is only in the context of a precipitating environmental context that it will actually manifest itself. Well, otherwise just lay dormant. Hello,
1: this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 176. And this episode is with Pins and Brian Little, who is a retired research professor in the Department of Psychology at Cambridge University, distinguished research professor emeritus at Carleton, and a senior fellow at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So Brian is well known for his work on personality psychology and his development of personal project analysis. I have been curious about personality psychology for quite a while now. So in this episode, that's most of what we talk about. Beginning with the big five, which they're the big five personality traits, which you can remember with the ocean acronym so openness conscientiousness extroversion agreeability and neuroticism and we get into what these are how they're measured and the the data that suggests that knowing these things is useful and has predictive power then we turn to whether personality is inherited as well personalities inherited then uh, a number of other related issues and one of brian's major contributions to the field which is known as personal project analysis so reviews comments likes you know all of that stuff very helpful and now without any further ado i hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as i enjoyed having it with brian Since psychology is such a huge field, just how was it that you ended up in this area? And I wonder if, I mean, it's a chicken and egg sort of deal, but were you always interested in personality, which led you to psychology, or were you already interested in psychology, but then once you were there, personality jumped out at you?
0: Yeah, a lot of people would say you must have always been interested in people from the get-go. And apart from being incredibly... um, Interested in everything, enthusiastically um, curious as a person, it wasn't restrictively to people at all. In fact, my original goals were were um, or aspirations were were more in the physical sciences and biological sciences, and uh, I was all set to. Uh, I, I'm Canadian, so I, I was uh, did my undergraduate work in in Canada in the city of Victoria. And uh, was all set to, uh, I'd been a neuropsychometrist for a while and looking at the correlates of brain problems that occurred in individuals with bad accidents and so on. So I was all set to go off to Berkeley uh, as a grad student in neuroscience, or we didn't call it that then, but neuropsychology. And um, I was uh, searching around in the library one day at, when I discovered a book uh, that was misplaced. I was looking for the Stereotaxic Atlas of the Brain, uh, which is a really neat book which has all these 3D images of the brain parts. I was reaching up for it, and there was a misshelved copy of a book by a fellow called George Kelly called The Psychology of Personal Constructs. And I said, Hey, I've heard of this fellow. So I took it down, I started reading it. And about four hours later, I was sore from sitting on the floor. I decided that this um, this is the camp I wish to pitch my tent in. Uh, it was in the field of personality psychology, and he turned everything upside down in psychology. In those days, there were a couple of dominant themes. One was stimulus response behaviorism; we were just a passive recipients of forces playing on us from the environment. There was the Freudian notion that we're the victim of forces gurgling up from the unconscious. And George Kelly had a metaphor that was pretty striking. He said, no, we're actually scientists testing out hypotheses in our everyday lives, changing our hypotheses in the light of experience and attempting to anticipate. We're an anticipatory animal, not a passive animal, an active one, an agentic one. And that intrigued me for a whole bunch of reasons. Some person um, some philosophical, uh, and, um, I, when I got to Berkeley, I changed from the neuropsychology option to the personality, uh, option, uh, which is also with the clinical people. And I was lucky they, they accepted me because the acceptance rate was much, was much more stringent in that area. Um, but, uh, I was able to switch into, uh, personality and, um, and uh, loved it and started to pursue my own research course in that in that domain. It was somewhat interrupted by, this was 1964. And this is the beginning of the student revolution. And it didn't leave me untouched. Um, I was, um, uh, after a pretty sheltered life as a Canadian undergraduate through the Pleasant fifties uh, up into the early sixties, the um, the um, free speech movement was was pretty heady stuff, and um, I was um, I was deeply influenced by it. And there, the images that were not just pawns to the industrial military complex—we are agents who are able to create lives of meaning and value—and so there was a, a consonance between what I was about to pursue in my studies or pursue further in my studies and what was going on in the culture around me. And uh, I just wanted to write and write and write, and I was fortunate enough uh, to get a Commonwealth scholarship to go to Oxford where I was able to sort of quieten down <laughs> and do some serious thinking about the, um, about the uh, uh, kind of model of the human being that I wanted to explore, probably for the rest of my life, and now, half a century later, uh, more sixty years later, uh, it has been the rest of my life. I've been studying that. Hmm.
1: Everything you've said connects with. I think the first thing you said that you were you were interested in so many things and personality. Of course, you already indicated that it connects to philosophy, but it connects with this huge intellectual history of ancient philosophy and then going up to the present and then psychoanalysis, these questions of meaning and value in people's lives. And then even you mentioned it connects to the biological sciences, which are so important for personality, genetics, neuroscience, actually one of the the very surprising things to me when looking at your CV was How closely your or how much your work seems to be applicable to business schools and business. I mean that that's a place that you end up teaching and lecturing a lot. It's it's all quite fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how it's growing. It's the kind of approach I take, which we'll get into, um, is is a particular interest to the helping professions, but increasingly uh, large organizations are really concerned with with, um, the well-being. Some of them are concerned about the well-being of their employees and their management, and they want to explore what can be done, not as therapy, but just as good management practice to take into account these individual differences in personality and the particular approach I take, what kind of projects in their lives are giving them meaning or are frustrating them in, in, in their pursuits. And, um, there has been a great deal of interest in that. And, um, it occupies um, a fair bit of my time right now is consulting two organizations on how personality can help inform their decisions and their strategies. Mm. Well, Personality
1: psychology hasn't really come up on the show before. I spoke with the behavioral geneticist Robert Ploman about some some adjacent topics, but we mainly discussed intelligence and so there are there are a number of ways in which I, I think we can get started but a good way might be just to talk about how contemporary psychologists just talk about personality or how they conceive of it in general. And with that being said, I have heard of something called uh, the big five, and we mentioned it a little bit before we spoke, but what are these traits and are they part of a a scientific understanding of personality?
0: Yeah, very much so. Uh, Let me give a little bit of historical context to it. In the um, late 60s, early 70s, there was quite a revolution in the field of personality. And a researcher uh, from Stanford uh, by the name of Walter Mischel did a a head-on attack upon the whole notion of stable traits of personality, which hitherto had been a a dominant field of of personality science. And he argued that um, we are not... um, best construed as individuals who have stable traits of personality that are predictably related to what we do. Rather, we're much more nuanced than that. And we are situational animals. We are um, constrained by the situations we're in or guided or shaped by them. And uh, we may be extroverted on on Tuesday, on Wednesday, but on Thursday, we may not be. And so it's a situation uh, rather than the putative trait that we should take into account. Um, And it's also interesting that Walter was a student of George Kelly's. And so it was not just the situation, it was the personal constructs that individual use that is better to know than the putative traits that they have. And so these twin forces of, of Michelle's critique had a Big impact on the field of personality. Indeed, it was very difficult for those who subscribe to the notion of traits to get research grants uh, during this period of psychology. And um, there was quite a degree of animosity uh, that was engendered by this, um, what I call the great trait debate. Um, But the traitors, as we may call them, ERS, uh, returned. And they returned strong. And one of the things they were able to do, it's very methodological, was to say, but we can't predict what David will do in situation X. But if we sum across situation X and X1 and X2 and X3 and X4, then we are better able and are able to predict way beyond chance levels and way beyond what Michelle called the, personality coefficient of 0.3, up to 0.6 or 0.7. In other words, the methodology that Michelle was using to critique crates was a very um, insipid methodology, insipid methodology. And instead, if we use the correct methodology, you can see that traits are predictive. And there began a whole resurgence of the trait paradigm in the 70s up through the 80s, up to the present day. That if we were to look through most of the contemporary research on personality with one exception, uh, they would be primarily um, trait research grounded on the big five or big six dimensions of personality. So uh, if you'd like, we can go through what those are, the, the, the big five.
1: I would, but there there are a, a couple things that I wanted to ask you about that you just mentioned first. So you, you brought up George Kelly and then personal constructs, which you contrasted with traits. So maybe we should j- just say what personal constructs are.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you asked because a lot of people skip over that. And it's really important that we understand it. Uh, constructs can be looked at as conceptual goggles that we place over our experience. And he argues that they can be captured as adjectives that we use. So I may look at the world in t- terms of good, bad. That would be a construct that has what Kelly called a broad range of convenience. You can apply that to um, politicians, good, bad cats, good, bad hypotheses. It has an enormous range of, of of applicability or convenience, is the term George used. Um, Other constructs are more narrowly phrased. Two-stroke, four-stroke applies to certain kinds of internal combustion engines, but don't apply very effectively to elements like grandmothers, unless you're using metaphor very wildly. And so the personal constructs are goggles that we try on. They're also implicitly hypotheses. This is a good person. This is a trustworthy person. And we don't just have one pair of goggles. So some people come very close to just having one construct in their system. MAGA, not MAGA. That may be the construct that guides their life. But most people have a variety of constructs that are organized into internal systems. And we can understand, it sounds very intellectualistic, and in fact, Kelly was criticized for having this rather too intellectual view. The fact that it was digital, the fact that it anticipated by 15 years the cognitive revolution is often not acknowledged because frankly, it isn't studied as much nor is accorded um, the historical precedence I think it deserves. But basically, he can show that these are dichotomous that they can be applied in such a way that we can determine the overall degree of complexity of a of a personal construct system with many degrees of freedom afforded by many different constructs or a simple simple system when we run um, factor analyses, which you'll be familiar with. There may be only one factor, good, bad, or, or good-looking, not good-looking, or well-built, not well-built, or went to Stanford, didn't go to Stanford. These may be the, the the constructs that you use. And note that they're not constructs in the loose um, sense or conceptual sense um, where we can talk about it in the context of the philosophy of science. They're Personal constructs. George Kelly's um, work is, is intriguing in that while it was um, accused of being very intellectualistic, his notion that we live our lives testing out hypotheses as proactive creatures actually had some very interesting and very novel ways of looking at emotions. And uh, he saw, for example, that anxiety is the awareness that an event is outside the range of convenience of your personal constructs. So if you meet someone or you're in a relationship or you confront an event in which it does not appear to be predictable from your constructs, it's just not working for you, um, then you're going to feel anxiety until you say, ah, that was it. I knew he was a MAGA supporter or Of course, now I understand, she does love me after all. And so this um, anxiety is of course, one of our most basic emotions to be looked at as uh, the result of having insufficient breadth constructs to handle the incoming stimulation from the world or the stimulation caused within you coming up about which you also have to make sense. I thought that was a very distinctive way of, of looking at another um, of, of looking at emotions, and another example, um, which I think is terribly clever, is um, the whole notion of um, how what happens when we attempt to extort validation. This is a definition of hostility. When we attempt to extort validation for a hypothesis we now realize has been disconfirmed. That's a very distinctive way of looking at something like hostility. That is, you're going to say, damn it, you do love me. You do love me. You look at all the we've done together. Obviously, you love me, don't you? And you can see hostility arising out of the incomprehension that something you were so absolutely sure was predictable, although you had perhaps a feeling that it may not be, has in fact ended up being the way you did not want it to be. Is this the best way of looking at hostility? Perhaps not. I mean, there are other evolutionary and other approaches that you can take. But it's just to show that I think Kelly... It was brilliant in reformulating from a cognitive perspective things that hitherto had not been um, looked at in that way. And again, it was one of the reasons I really admired him as a theorist.
1: Hmm. Well, I think that we, we, we got onto the track of George Kelly and personal constructs on the way to talking about the big five traits and uh, why or why there might be a sixth or what it is. And I think it would be nice to hear the story of how they came to be as well, particularly because I know there's a lot of skepticism about personality, psychology and the big five and whether it's a, a real thing or not or, or just pseudoscience. I'd really love to hear the, the story behind it.
0: Yeah, there, there are a couple of stories I alluded um, earlier earlier to uh, the big trait debate in psychology and whether there are um, stable traits. And I had mentioned that the big five arose in part, there was a long history to the development of the big five, but it arose in part in a, as a, a very strong reaction against this dismissal of the utility of traits. So we can. T- there's several lines we can discuss here. One, one line of argument, is that if you want to predict consequential outcomes, um, like whether a person um, is going to run afoul of the law or whether they're going to have rocky relationships or whether they're going to die early, um, notwithstanding some physical health issues, above and beyond physical health are the things related to longevity and so on that may be related to these. And And the quick answer is yes, traits are good predictors of those consequential outcomes. And uh, there's there's a mountain of research that documents what those are. Precisely what the causal mechanisms are is another question. But the pragmatic question, do personality traits have utility? I think the answer now is yes, indeed they do. Um, And... Of the many studies that were done, um, the the vast number of them settled on a five-factor view, uh, sometimes called the big five. There's a link between the two, but it's popularly called the big five uh, perspective on personality. And, And these spell out an acronym, which is OCEAN where openness stands, uh, O stands for open to experience, uh, C, conscientiousness, E, extroversion, A, agreeableness, and N, neuroticism. And these contrast with the opposite size. of two, And these are normally distributed. Uh, they're not all or none, unlike some of the early personality tests, I think uh, the Myers-Briggs and so on, which research psychologists are more skeptical of, these are are normally distributed and they are um, robustly so. So you're not going to get individuals in a distribution going like this. It's going to be normally distributed. So most people on extroversion, for example, would be arbitrarily designated as ambiverted. They're somewhere in between. Um, But these, um, uh, so the, the opposite End of the normally distributed poles of um, openness to experience would be somebody who is open and engaged with the world and somebody who is closed and rather wants to do things in a traditional way and don't overload me with too much information that is discordant with my traditional beliefs and so on. Um, In uh, conscientiousness, you have, have people who are... Highly conscientious uh, by definition, uh, and those who are more lackadaisical and informal and what the heck, satisfying creatures more than perfectionists, uh, and so so we could go down each of those. But I think it's 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 really interesting to look at the prediction of some of the consequential outcomes as a function of each of these. So if we start with openness to experience, um. The open-to-experience individual um, has, has a low threshold for being excited by things around her. Um, their enthusiasm for um, uh, seeing what's new and attending to it, noticing things that are in the environment that are uh, distinctive and, and novel. The... Open to experience person is also characterized by one of its sub factors is kind of intellectuality and interest in ideas, interested in experiences. This is a broad panoply of experiences that open individuals experience. Um, there The scores on openness are a good predictor um, of success in creative professions. And uh, the reason for this is pretty clear, that highly conscientious and uh, highly um, open to experience individuals uh, love to get involved in what is new. Uh, they also show a certain degree of um, restraint from getting in the same old conventional ways of doing things. And so after a while, they, they say, no, 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 we do that all the time. Let's look at it this way. And this may range from The way in which you do your exercise regimen to the creation of wonderful works of art. Um, The characteristics of highly creative people, as a slight segue from that, are really quite intriguing because they are, on the one hand, um, driven by um, a positive emotional core that is unstoppable. At the same time, they can be very moody and very um, uh, difficult to work with. A highly creative person, a person who is highly open to experience and is engaged in, cre- in the creative process, uh, can be oblivious to the niceties of life, uh, certainly of social, uh, social niceties. And th- they can be very, very hard to, to tolerate uh, and so, I in in one of the chapters of my book, I have a whole section on the 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 myth of the creative genius, the, the lone creative genius, that I don't believe that highly creative individuals um, create on their own, but are aided and abetted by those who also sit and wait, and tell them that their fly is open or tell them that they should be more outgoing uh, or be more receptive to the people who are coming to see them. They they actually pay the checks that are supposed to be paid to the vendors. Um, Without those other individuals who create the background to the creative process, uh, the highly creative product or the highly creative project would not get completed. And I think there's a kind of this myth of the individual hero that sometimes gets us into difficulties because too often there's a kind of blasé attitude that they do it on their own. Not necessarily, in fact, highly unlikely. Um, so if we go down the rest of the, the um, links between the traits, the big five, and consequential outcomes, we get to conscientiousness. And this is in a way, a contrast to open to experience. Highly conscientious individuals are particularly interested in getting things right, doing the right thing. They get things done on time, uh, and they show alacrity in um, doing what needs to be done to finish the day uh, with with tasks completed, deeds done, Um, and highly Creative individuals, uh, sorry, uh, those who are um, very um, conscientious um, generally have a number of very positive consequential outcomes. Some are pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious that a highly conscientious person is going to do better in school. They do. They're going to do better in promotions through various um, organizations and companies. They do. Uh, one would expect that they would uh, generally in all parts of life requiring tasks to be done, they should succeed and they do. What may be less obvious is that these are among those who are most likely to live longer lives and that health consequence of conscientiousness is perhaps not quite as obvious Um and it, it seems to me that the, the reason that highly conscientious people um, live longer lives is that they are um, characterized by um, sticking to regimens, such as a health regimen, that will serve their health. Right? The highly conscientious person takes his pills on a regular basis. The highly conscientious person... Um, will stick to her training regimen, even though it's winter and it's tough. Uh, but she's still doing that. And grandma is still out lifting weights. Uh, and so you have these seemingly um, highly productive individuals at the same time being very helpful with respect to their own health. And, uh, and that's, uh, I think that is a, a rather less expected aspect of conscientiousness. Extroversion is um, generally associated with well-being and positive affect or positive emotions happiness um, the um, I can get into some sub components of these traits for example extroversion is differentiable uh, into into um, uh, enthusiasm, but also assertiveness, and enthusiasm is something that is uh, associated with positive outcomes. Assertiveness, not necessarily all of the, it, may aid in a bit getting tasks done, but it may alienate to a certain extent uh, people in your environment, unless it's handled judiciously with tact. Um, so, um, and there, there are many. Um, Differences between the extroverted and introverted person. Many of them were were captured by Susan Cain's book, uh, Quiet. Uh, hmm. Which I've heard of that. Yeah, it was probably it may well still be on the bestseller list. She has a new book since then, but uh, uh, Quiet was a plea to. Understand that introverted individuals have um, important characteristics that they may they have quiet strengths we might say that are very important to take into account and that there has been a particularly American um, valuing of extroversion the extrovert ideal um, which has had um, in her in her judgment and given the cells of her books um multitudes have agreed with her on this. it has led to a diminishment of the of the and a lack of appreciation of introverted individuals. And so um, there has um, and I I've, I've long lectured on this as a as an introvert myself uh, yeah <laughs> I from 1970 on I've been giving talks on extroversion and sort of letting it, you know, and that uh, I was very introverted, and people would come up after, as they certainly do with Susan, and say, uh, "You've really, you've really changed my life." Uh, I, I didn't realize what was happening in my marriage, for example, until I found out a little bit about this extroversion-introversion dimension. So we can talk more about that later, because it gets to the whole notion of free traits and a character, and so on. But we'll, we'll get into that. Um, uh, later, <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> extraversion, <clears throat> excuse me, does have um, a number of um, consequential outcomes associated with with it. If you combine it with um, neuroticism, the fifth of the Big Five, and the low scores on neuroticism and high scores on extraversion, are very good predictors of satisfaction with life, of happiness. Um, and so if you want to ask a person uh, what their extroversion and the opposite of neuroticism and stability scores are, um, gives you a pretty good idea of, of how happy they're going to be. Does this mean uh, that there's no route to happiness, meaning in life? for those who are not extroverted or for those who are somewhat neurotic or anxious? I think the clear answer is no. But what we need to do as psychologists is to find out what are those paths through which individuals can glean delight, find happiness, uh, and and extract meaning uh, in ways that don't restrictively conform to social expectations. And uh, that's something that I and my students have been um, riveted by in our attempts to look at human human nature. The those who who do take the the lesser trodden path, and um, and what happens to them, and how might we open up more paths for them, uh, which gets us from the study of traits into the study of projects and action. Away from the adjectives of life to the verbs of life, and um, that—that's where we're hitting. A couple more of the big five traits of life: uh, agreeableness. Agreeableness is, is fascinating because high scores are predictable of working well in groups. Of um, it, most people like to have agreeable people around them because they're not a pain in the neck. They're they pretty positive. Maybe some can be annoyingly so, but they're, they're, they're pretty positive individuals. Um, but the risk factor of agreeableness is that you may end up being taken advantage of. And highly agreeable people uh, don't like to be disagreeable. Therefore, they um, the, the benefit in groups, large and small, By those who are low in agreeableness, who are able to confront evil, to confront injustice. The agreeable person is unlikely to say, Hey, don't do that to her because it's not my business. I'm just a nice, quiet guy. And what's going on over there really bothers me, but, you know. But the disagreeable person says, what? What are you doing? And confronts. And yes, he's being disagreeable. She's being disagreeable. But it, it, that in the case of interventions in cases of impropriety or, 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 um, or illegality, are just plain evil. Um, those individuals um, have consequential outcomes that are that are positive. And so I guess as I go through these, it it raises the criterion issue. By what do we mean by a positive uh, outcome of having certain traits? And if we were just to say that it's nice to be happy and healthy and wise, um, it may miss out a whole bunch of other virtues in human living that uh, may be better predicted by combinations of traits that... uh, that are not normally regarded as as in themselves uh, positive. Um, Now, it's true that highly disagreeable people are much more at risk for cardiovascular disease, for example. Uh, And so being um, low on agreeableness does have that consequential outcome. And the reason is, uh, it used to be thought that um, type A personality he was a time-driven person. Person who was busy, 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 and um, there was some superficial truth to that, but the the real um, causal path, the behavioral pathogen, is hostility. And so, you, I've often come across in in talking to senior executives, cases where a very active, extroverted, busy, project-oriented individual is told to slow down, dear. Slow down. We're on our holidays. I think you have your cell phone out. Don't look at it. Relax. Take in the sun. Breathe deeply. You're probably, if he is an is a energetic extroverted person, you're probably increasing his hostility by insisting that he slow down. And so you have this inadvertent uh, inversion of your influence where instead of making him healthier, you're you're actually making him more frustrated and, and increasing hostility, which is the behavioral pathogen. So again, things get complex even when you start dealing with traits. Uh, But the basic, and if we get finally to on the big five to neuroticism, um, it is uh, basically, um, these are feelings of anxiety uh, and and feelings of depression or depressive affect. Neuroticism as a personality trait is not neurosis as a psychoanalyst or someone else would would call it. That is a putative disease entry, uh, a, a disease entity. Uh, rather, it is, again, a normally distributed trait disposition to experience negative affect. Extroversion is largely a disposition to experience positive affect. And so you have different, very different consequences of those two um, traits in terms of affective experience. So those are the big five and some of the consequentialities. You can predict um, um, criminal behavior uh, in large part from the inability to uh, have sufficient agreeableness that, that, that you're, you, don't, you don't care about hurting other individuals. Um, you have eco control problems and, and so on. But that was the answer to the attack upon traits. The pragmatic answer is look what we're able to do. Now, when I'm lecturing on this, I often say, there you go. There are your traits. How you doing? I think I know you're happy because I see your scores. Um, ooh, you've got a bit of a problem there. If I wouldn't do this. Uh, but if I were to walk around and say, oh, oops! look at this all here. His, his agreeableness score is way, way, way too low. Um, but... Aren't we missing something when we deal with traits in that way? When we deal with personality as merely the instantiation of supposedly enduring traits that are fairly um, consistent. And that's been empirically studied too. and, And the trait psychologists can make a very strong point that the rank order of on these traits is pretty constant over the lifetime. Now, there are changes that occur with age. We get less extroverted, for example, in certain stages of life. We grow less neurotic, more agreeable, and so on. Um, but within those normative changes, there are the individuals, the rank order of them stays fairly stable. I mean, way more stable than those who, who, who um, criticize traits would, would believe that you, know, you, you may be a lot less extroverted now at mid-age than you were in grade 12. But if you go back to your high school reunion, you'll still be relative to the kid next to you who is rather introverted. You'll still be the one who's cracking jokes and And having a good time, and so on uh, even though in absolute terms your extroversion score is is lower than it um than it was when you were in high school, so those are the big five traits, and as I say, I believe strongly that there are fates beyond traits, and uh, that's where my work on personal projects comes in
1: hmm well. That was I mean so fascinating, and particularly for me because i I always want to learn more about myself, and I know that, as you just mentioned, this is all material that's sort of on route to your work on personal projects and the idiogenic, but I think it's it's very much worth dwelling on just a little bit longer and if something is reliably predictive, then that suggests that there's something there, some meaningful connection but How are the the personality traits measured in a scientific, rigorous way to begin with? And then how can people get this reliably tested like me if they're
0: curious? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, um, I'll take the second one first. Um, Big five measurements um, can be accessed on the web very easily. So if you just put big five personality traits... There are a number of big five um, assessment devices that you can take that are free. There are others that are the gold standard that you you need to pay for. Um, My colleagues, Adam Grant and and, uh, initiated by Ray Dalio, have created an online personality test that is free called Principles U, Y-O-U, and uh, it has, covers the big five, but some additional um, traits as well. And these have been rigorously developed. They're based on um, item statistics, which items uh, cohere together in coherent ways, um, which can be thrown out because they're obscure or because everybody answers them the same way, which is no good for differentiating among individuals or between. Um, and, um, and so it's, it's quite easy to get yourself measured on these um, traits of, um, of personality. There is a sixth one I should mention, the honesty, humility um, trait that Mike Ashton and, and uh, Kim have engaged and developed over the years. Virtually everybody says that this too is, is, a, is an important dimension of personality. And um, we've included that in, in, in principles, you, or something very similar to that, which, which gets into the whole business of, of being intellectually humble. And um, hum- humility, um, mm-hmm. and the willingness to accept that you could be wrong, and to en- enjoy, actually enjoy being disconfirmed, is something that many of us are seeing as the it's the hallmark of open science. This is, this is a hallmark of, you know, here are my data. Where did I screw up? And uh, there was a not entirely apocryphal tale of a of a mathematician at Oxford who, after a talk, had a person come up and. Say, you know, I'd like to point out, if you don't mind, I think you're totally wrong. And here's where you've made your mistake. And the fellow said, oh, my God, thank you so much. You saved me years of work. And when you talk to many scientists right now, the first thing you do, if somebody says you made a mistake, is you say, no, I haven't. Couldn't have. I got four postdocs working on this with me. But intellectual humility—the capacity to say, "Ooh, wow, could I have been wrong?" Well, yes, um, well, I didn't think so, but let's take a look. Ah, and so, but I wasn't. But thank you for making me more aware of that potential issue. Or, yeah, we're going to have to start from square one again. And as you as as you know that in, in the field of science, I know you're a philosopher, but in the field of science, uh, experiments don't always work. And, uh, and mistakes are made. And having an attitude of, of positive openness, another kind aspect of openness to being wrong is, I think, fundamental to open science and to actually living a valuable life. Um, people who are absolutely certain they're right on everything um can often do stumble in their lives so
1: re- returning to that um the first question that I asked though how is it that they that the traits are scientifically or rigorously measured or determined in a in a person
0: yep um w- one of the dominant perspectives on on traits is the lexical hypothesis Uh, this goes back to the rootedness in common languages around the world of traits of personality why did all languages have a, a word that could be translated as kind or as energetic or as sad or depressed and so um Psychologists early on, Gordon Allport, and one of his students, Hodbert, um, um, did a study where they, they accumulated thousands of these um, aspects of personality and antitival form and arranged um, through various statistical techniques to see what under, underlies these diverse lexical hypotheses, these lexical terms. And um, it it was that kind of work in the lexical tradition carried out by psychologists and others around the world that led gradually to the Big Five and its um, evidence that it has broad cultural generalizability. It's not perfect, there are some cultures in which those terms um, that capture, say, the Big Five do not appear. There are blends of them, for example, or completely uh, indigenous characterizations of individual differences. But generally speaking, particularly with an educated um, sample of individuals, you're, you're going to get the big five replicated. And so it can be done by questionnaire items, um, such as I like to party. Uh, and you get individuals to answer those questions. Or they can be done by adjectives, sociable. And these tend to capture the same things. There are reasons to prefer each of those. Um, I have a slight preference for adjectival forms. But the common element that you do is that you aggregate these items into coherent themes. And you use mathematical techniques, factor analysis and cluster analysis, and other techniques that look at the... um, Items that converge together and those that are differentiated from them. And they can be orthogonal. For example, the big five are thought to be orthogonal. So there's a zero correlation between your scores on each of the big five. Sometimes you may be looking at facets underlying traits, and and they may be um, not orthogonal, but actually. You, you use a factor analytic technique called oblique factor analysis that looks at some partial dependencies between, some partial correlations between the subfactors. All of this is highly technical, but there's a great deal of common agreement that when you run these factor analyses of people responding to items, the items that should cluster together theoretically, such as I'd like to party, i can't be in a city without looking people up. I really love people. All those items should cohere. A person who scores high on one should also score high on the others. And they do. And so th- that is the rigorous, and it's really rigorous, the kind of research that goes into the establishing of, um, say, a commercial trait measure like Costa Lecrae's um, Neo-PIR, which is the granddaddy, the gold standard of trait measurement, Um, there's a great deal of work, like thousands of hours of research, looking at the psychometrics of these, um, of these instruments. Um, did I answer that?
1: Yes, you totally did.
0: Yeah. So It sounds
1: like it's generally done with self-reported questionnaires.
0: Also, and hand in hand with this has been the insistence by trait theorists that we need to show that you're not just delusional, that we need to have peer ratings. And so if um, George um, sees himself as very extroverted, but nobody else does, uh, they all read him as rather more introverted, then you need to take that, that into account before you ascribe a stable predicate to him that he is extroverted. Uh, and so it raises the empirical question, which has been adequately answered, which is, is there generally a concordance between self-rated big five traits and peer-rated ratings of you? Uh, and the answer is yes. Very strong concordance. So it, it rules out, at least in a general level, there may be a few exceptions, and depending on what groups you're looking at, but generally speaking, uh, people are reporting with an awareness of how others see them as well, uh, and that there isn't that much discrepancy. In fact, there's large-scale convergence. Uh, and uh, that that's kind of check upon one of the frequent criticisms, which is a rather weak criticism, is that people are just going to lie. There are some cases where you're taking um, a a test um, for an employment situation, where the question may be, I really like to cause a lot of trouble just for fun, where you may rate yourself much lower on that than you normally would because you're applying for a job, for God's sakes, uh, and, and, and so on. There are ways of handling that as well. Um, there are ways of looking at whether people um, are overly presenting a positive self. And you can put in a correction factor for that. If they're doing it on all the possible options, then you're going to diminish the estimate of their score on the on these positive traits. So there are a whole bunch of corrective factors that go into the background on these tests. Um, and... Um, Generally, there's another rule (laughs) that has emerged over the last 40 years in personality assessment, and that is sometimes, excuse me, a a straight direct magnitude rating on a well defined trait can do just as well as these more intensely um, constructed inventories. Um, a lot of this work came out of the Oregon Research Institute in, in uh, Eugene, um, Oregon. And uh, basically, uh, the, the argument is if you could create, if you could describe what an extroverted person is on one end and in, a, in a couple of phrases and what a more introverted person is, and then you get a direct magnitude estimate by having a line and having the person dissect, <coughs> bisect where they are on that line. Measure it. <coughs> Excuse me. You can, uh, you can get a high level of agreement with the more laboriously uh, created uh, personality scales. Now, this isn't nice news to those who earn their living by creating these long scales. But to someone like me who puts a great deal of credence in self report and who believes that individuals have a fair degree of insight into what they're really like, um, <coughs> excuse me, they um, the, these results are quite um, encouraging.
1: No, this is all. Uh- quite quite fascinating and i mean we could have entire conversations just on these little minute dimensions of the big five but the but the last question i'll ask before we move on to the personal projects is and i I think this might have been hinted at earlier when you listed maybe the three factors that go into our personalities being biogenic sociogenic and idiogenic. to what extent does the research indicate that these stable traits are biogenic in origin, and to what extent
0: sociogenic? I can answer the first one pretty pretty easily, and that is that there are a lot of genetic studies done. <clears throat> I'm so sorry, I have a bit of a cough today. Um, there's a uh, there've been a number of studies done on the um, Calculating the genetic influence on um, traits. The consensus for years was that between 40 and 60 percent of the variance in um, big five traits could be attributable to genetic factors. Th- th- most psychologists are hesitant in. in putting it that baldly, because we know that it isn't a simple, direct influence. Rather, um, the genetic potential um, is elicited by environmental stimulation, without which it would not emerge and have a consequential impact on the individual's behavior, so that Um, You may have a genetic uh, proclivity, propensity, but it is only in the context of a a precipitating environmental context that it will actually manifest itself. Well, otherwise, just lay dormant. And so I always like to tell that to my students because otherwise they may say, but you're telling me it's all my genes. No, we're not saying that. We're saying that there is a genetic influence, but genetic influences are themselves um, a product of interactions between the biogenic and the sociogenic. For example, whether somebody is lonely or not interacts with a genetic predisposition to depression. They won't be depressed if they don't have the gene and they won't be depressed if they don't suffer loneliness. That's one example, obviously, that um, informs us how important it is not to talk about biogenic and sociogenic <laughs> as if they are in, um, in, in, in separate silos of influence. They're, not, they're constantly in interaction.
1: To take a, a very extreme example, you could have all of the genes that would determine an intellect like Albert Einstein's, but if you're raised by wolves, uh, you're not going to solve quantum gravity.
0: Not quantum gravity. You may be able to be, <laughs> pursue other things. No, of course, of course. And I, th- I think that it, so much of human personality research bumps up against ethical issues. I mean some of the very many people, for example, regard intelligence as a component of personality. It's often linked in with it. There are journals that emphasize the, the link between personality and intelligence as individual difference variables, things that you can measure about individuals. And once you get into that, you get into some really um, challenging ethical domains. My own view is, um, and this links back to something we talked about earlier, that I was very much influenced by my two years at Berkeley when I was working on my PhD, by the social movement there. And I have always been concerned with social ameliorative research to see what we can do to improve the lot of the human condition. I don't think all scientists should do that uh, at all. But I personally, and many of my colleagues, regard that as something that matters to us. So we wouldn't want to study aspects of intelligence without looking at the possibilities of increasing cognitive capacity and so on. And so <clears throat> this is where um, the ethical and the and scientific merge. And I think we need to be clear as scientists ourselves, what research we want to do and what we want to um, uh, spend our lives engaged with and what does not seem to us really worth pursuing without uh, denigrating those who choose to pursue, um, let's say, a purely biogenic conception of humans. Mm-hmm. I've had
1: a couple of interviews on the show that have touched on these sensitive issues involving intelligence and whether or not it's plastic or highly determined highly determined by genetics but in neither of those two conversations did we talk about the relationship between intelligence and personality so i know that we're we're still not getting to the idiogenic that's what i want to get to next but maybe briefly what is the relationship between intelligence and personality
0: yeah um it's, it's really more of a journal issue than it is an epistemological issue. So the st- both unlike experimental psychology that arranged experiments where <clears throat> you shifted the stimulus conditions in a you know, perception experiment or, or the social conditions in a social psychological experiment and looked at the impact on a group of people, both intelligence and personality were looking at how individuals differ between themselves and so they adopted a very different approach to science Uh, those who studied intelligence and personality were alike in that they ran correlational studies rather than experiments that were supposedly able to determine a causal path between X and and Y the Those researchers and individual differences were more um, uh, likely to look at and were um, committed to examining uh, correlation. Now, as we've developed increasingly sophisticated statistical techniques, we're able to impute highly plausible causal models that we can then test. uh, And here's where we start getting into your whole philosophy of science, um, I am far more comfortable with the kind of explanation that goes on, let's say, in ecology, than I am with physics as a model for studying human personality. Um, and the, the study, and ethology, the study of animals in the wild, the study of, of patterns of location of of elements in in uh, in different niches. Uh, in fact, the, the the whole study of niches and and um, the um, well, it's it feel very similar to yours, muriology, uh, where you're looking at the relation of parts to wholes. All of that is our science, and experimental researchers are not that interested in it because they are trying to look at causal relationships. So, it's it's a different stance towards a philosophy of science. I pretend not at all to have any sophistication in that area, but but I I have tried to understand what my implicit assumptions are and how they might possibly be wrong. And I'm increasingly convinced that we need to we need to That didn't sound good, but it's okay. I I think that may be one of your cats or could it be mine? No, it was on. No, your- that was on my end. Uh, I I can't remember what I was saying. It wasn't important anyway. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, I, uh, without any further delay, then we have covered the the big five stable traits. We've covered the biogenic and the sociogenic. So, what then is the third component of personality, which you call our idiogenic
0: selves? Um. Back to Kelly again. Um, George Kelly argued that we need to understand um, the individual and her own personal constructs. And these cannot be reduced down to other people's constructs. Um, We need to approach an individual whose personality we're trying to understand as a co-scientist as a scientist, trying to make sense of her world uh, through, through the personal constructs that she creates to apprehend, anticipate, and act upon the world. I expanded Kelly's work to basically using that science metaphor um, to suggest that each of us is not a scientist so much as a specialist. And that you can take, and here it gets into muriology again, it gets into, into um, subdivisions of important elements that need to be plumbed further and further down. And it eventuated in project analytic theory. But um, the starting notion was that we we enter into domains in our lives where we simultaneously develop um greater frequency of interaction with the domain, which leads to greater positive affect, which leads to greater cognitive complexity in a domain. And so this is what I call a specialization loop. And I was fascinated, um, this is when I was in my years at at Oxford, um, with um, the research that was looking at the... um, Basic ontology of persons and things as primary objects, and um, I believe that we could look at specialization in people, specialization in things as the er differentiation, the the, the basic extraversion. Assume that we had a homogeneous environment; that you're. It's. It's doesn't matter whether you're. Attracted to, stimulated by persons or things, I started to make that differentiation. So there's a whole area of my research that took maybe 10 years on specialization theory that eventually led to saying, no, uh, we're still asking them questions like trait psychologists. You're still saying, you know, do you like to be with other people? Do you like to observe the path of a meteor through a telescope uh, to get your person thing orientation? And then it dawned us that basically they should be telling us what interests them. And that idiogenic, that is these the elements that we're studying are elicited from, elucidated by the person we're trying to understand. And that led to asking individuals, sort of basically the equivalent, hey, what's up? What you doing? Uh, And how's it going? And the degree of isomorphism with how we act as humans in our everyday lives was appealing to me. You know, if you can... I should tell you this story because it illustrates why it matters to me so much. Um... When I used to lecture, um, I don't know whether I mentioned this earlier. I, I did, did I mention in my lectures, people would come around before the lecture and I'd I'd say, how's it going? And they'd say, okay. Now, well, you know the you know what it's like. You're in a class. People arrive 10 minutes early. Some of them, they're sitting around. I come in and I say, hey, how are you doing? And they say, fine. Next day, I'd say, hey, how are you doing? They say, And that went on for about four days. And then one day, I don't know, something just got to me that made me say to to a small group of them, no, really, how are you doing? And they knew it was an idle chatter because some of them looked pretty beat up. And, uh, you know, how's it going? And it seemed to change everything. They that small group. You know, one of them, their boyfriend, decided to go to Stanford and leave Harvard. And another one is divorced. So, so, so that student had a project of figuring out what went wrong with my with the person I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And then somebody else has. Uh, Project relating to getting over my parents' divorce, it came out of the blue. I hadn't a clue. They waited until I got away, and all of a sudden, wang. Um uh you know, the whole panoply of pursuits, projects that define what people are actually doing in their lives, the frustrations they experience the joy they experience with them. Um, We move swiftly from how's it going? You know, I think you're not looking that happy today. To expressions of joy saying, that was great on the midterm. How are you doing? Great. (laughs) Does that matter to you? Of course it matters to me. And, uh, you know, a lot of this is playful banter. It's it's not, well, tell me about your projects. It's not this sort of almost psychoanalytic, I want to hear you. It's more, hey, I really want to hear you. And that difference in tone from almost judgmental intrusion to gentle evocation, I think is what leads to people to start talking about things that really matter to them. So um, the ideogenic is the systematic study of those kind of elements that can only be elicited by direct appeal to the person whose personality you're trying to study. Personal construct theory uses an ideogenic approach. Narrative psychology uses an ideogenic approach. Tell me your life story. Uh, Projects and narratives are very closely linked in in some ways. Um, But both, they share this ideogenic focus and certainly personal project is a quintessentially ideographic um, approach to personality. Hmm.
1: Well, just totally uh, offhandedly, you mentioned Mariology a couple of times. One of my uh, mentors and professors at Columbia. His name is Achille Varzi. He's probably the, the the leading mariologist in the world. And we had a we had. I think it's around episode ninety seven. It's a four hour long mariology episode. If people want to listen to that,
0: I <laughs> I am blown away. I I know his work actually. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's he um he did a whole article on Nietzsche's not Nietzsche. But on on uh, the niche, uh, the niche. Yeah, I'm sure. As a uh, as an instantiation of what a meteorological view of, of embeddedness and so on is, so. isn't that cool? Yeah, he, he did it with a fellow. To be fair, um, at um, at uh, Buffalo, uh, who um, who shared that article with him. But it's it's fabulous work.
1: Mm-hmm. He's and, he's terrific. He's a great guy. That great was 1999. Person. Ah, wrote that article. Good memory. Yeah. Yeah. It's my, yeah my, he has a lot of interesting, one of really my curses. interesting
0: work. Yeah. That's right.
1: But, um, one of these hypothetical questions you asked a hypothetical interlocutor of yours is what is your project or what are your projects? So this, and you just mentioned it, uh, what are personal projects?
0: Right. Formally they're, um, extended sets of personally salient action in context. That's the formal def- definition. So we can take each of those terms uh, extended so that um, projects are inherently temporal and extend over a period of time. Now, I I have enormous pleasure reading philosophy. I claim no expertise whatsoever in it. But it's a constant companion to me, and in fact, I think every personality psychologist should have an analytic philosopher in her pocket uh, to pull out to clarify concepts before they trip her up. Uh, I certainly do, and um, uh, I'm, I'm able to uh, bounce a lot of my ideas off off philosophical concepts to make sure I've got some clarity. Uh, and so, um, extended, uh, temporally extended. Um, and also spatially extended projects can take place across a number of settings sets um, of personally salient action so you can watch a person doing a whole bunch of disparate things and it's disparateness is revealed to you only because you don't know what the project is so you may see a person going into the um, into the cafeteria on your campus uh, you can see them then going into a classroom looking in the classroom and then going out again and two other explicit behavioral acts that you can look at monitor um, but totally you don't know how, you can't give a coherent account for it <laughs> but if you ask the person adopt the idiot idiogenic perspective, they may tell you that I'm looking for herb. Uh he wasn't in the we planned to have lunch, he wasn't in the cafeteria. I looked to see if he was in the classroom because that's where I, he had before we we're supposed to have lunch and so on. So a project is an is a, an extended set of personally salient action and con Text. Salient here means that um, it is something that guides your attention. It's what a psychologist, Eric Klein, called a current concern. It occupies your space. It, it, you, you're much more likely to notice things relevant to your projects. Um, so if your project is to uh, increase your, your fitness you may notice um, that a new fitness store is opened up down the street in a way that a person who is equally astute to the changes in their village just doesn't notice because it's not as salient. So these are salient actions. In context is is everything to it because um, projects are uh, intimate links between the individual and the context. Um see if I go. I don't know where I'm supposed to look here, but uh, so here here are the personal uh, here are the um, the biogenic influences that drive you to be excited by things. Here's the here are the sociogenic features what your society, your culture, your norms of living have exposed you to, and then the idiogenic one is the is the way in which you link those two in a, in an ongoing project. So our project at first are sort of constrained because we don't have that much agency. But as we get older, um, we are able, uh, as we grow up, to be agents, which is vital to my own perspective on uh, personality. Trait psychologists don't necessarily assume that the person has agential status. Uh, they, in one way may be seen as just the <clears throat> outward form of the influence of stable traits of personality. Not many are, are that constrained in their view of the human condition, but it's a logical, a logical entailment of a view that looks at traits as all-powerful without taking the context into account. So, <clears throat> extended sets of personally salient action in context is the formal definition of a project we begin asking individuals about their projects by simply giving them a few examples. We've tried doing it with many different types of examples and types of examples do not seem unduly to constrain or shape the projects that people list. People know what they're engaged in, you know. Uh, And so we started just through their convenience dealing with individuals, but now we've given yeah, students, but now we're, we've given it to um, literally thousands of people. We've elicited tens of thousands of personal projects that we keep in a data bank called CBank for Social Ecological Assessment Data Bank. And uh, the larger framework within which personal projects um, are found uh, is a social ecological one, which is what I was depicting with. with, with This visual, so that you have right down on the bottom here, you have consequential outcomes, life satisfaction, performance, effectiveness, and so on. All the desirable aspects of living life well. Um, Up here, you have biogenic. Up here, you have sociogenic converging on personal projects. And each of these have links to well-being and and consequential outcomes but there's some evidence and it is still very preliminary and I don't want to overclaim on this but there is some evidence published that shows <clears throat> that <clears throat> the influence of traits on all these outcomes that we've talked about earlier is mediated by the projects you're engaged in now, that's, that's fascinating because it would mean that if we're trying to look at the, if we're trying to approximate the causal paths of what happens when a person acts in a particular way, the treats can serve as a hint. The project can serve as the path to influencing that state of well-being or flourishing or floundering, as, as the case may be, it, that last bottom of variables, is also a continuum from floundering to flourishing. And um, for example, a practical example, it may well be that the reason extroverts are are, uh, happier isn't because of the dopaminergic pathways that underlies the biogenic link between those two, so much as the fact that extroverts are more likely to have People in their lives, and if you look at their projects, they have a lot of recreational projects. They have a lot of projects involving positive relations with other people. And so if you take the scores that we could derive from scales where we have different dimensions that they rate their projects on, it seems that that could be getting us closer to charting paths of causal influence,
1: one thing that jumps out at me that distinguishes the personal projects from the stable traits is just this notion of stability. We can't choose or change our stable traits, but we can actually change our projects. And we, yeah, yes. go ahead.
0: Go yeah, ahead. no, absolutely. That's 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 mm-hmm. vital. Go ahead, though. You, I want you to finish that.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask how personal projects connect with the notion of free traits, which you you mentioned earlier, as opposed to the, the stable traits. And maybe this is where stability and freedom
0: connect. Yeah, that, that's a great segue. Um, um, I wanna just back up a wee bit to describe the measurement of personal projects because- Oh, please, the please. The way I described it now, it just sounds as if we just elicit them. What, what do we do to get the quantitative estimate of how it may mediate between traits and outcomes. And here's how we do it. We have um, a dozen or so, up to 20 different dimensions that we get individuals to rate each of their projects on. And so these, again, we can, there are things like how enjoyable are they, how stressful, how much control do you have over them? And many of the different traits of personality that have appeared in the literature can be captured by a project dimension, such as locus of control, whether you're an internal or external locus of control individual, can be looked at in terms of how in each of your projects do you see how much control you have over it. And we would expect that you might show great variability in that, um, Or not, as the case may be, because there, we find that there are some stabilities There are stable ratings that allow us to make some predictions from summing up across your ratings, across your projects for each of the project dimensions that you're rating. So when we run factor analyses of these 17, between 12 and 20 um, dimensions, depending on the study and depending on the ecosystem that we're studying, uh, is it single parents, is it People in a military zone and so on. It varies <clears throat> what dimensions we are going to use. But there's a common core set of them. And they, when we run factor analyses on these, they seem to consistently comprise the following. Strangely enough, five dimensions, just like the big five. Uh, and their meaning, how, how meaningful your projects. And that would be getting high ratings across all your projects on um, how congruent with your values are they? How self-expressive are they? Um, how important? Uh, how in- engaged with them are you? Um, and so on. all those co into a dimension we call project meeting. The second dimension is manageability. So that would have things like control, who initiated the project, um, time adequacy or time urgency, uh, the less time you have, the more problematic that manageability will be, and so on. So those are meaning, manageability, community, um, or communion, or connectedness. We can use any of those three terms. are still debating which is the best. I like connectedness in which we look at at, um, to what extent are your projects visible to others. Some people may live their lives pursuing projects that no one else is aware of. Just to have my dad admire me. You have no idea. Others who know you may have no idea that this is a core project for you in your life. Uh, So are your projects low in visibility or are they... Such that everyone has a pretty good idea of what you're on about and what you're doing and and so on. Uh, And technological media certainly changed that. People now are aware of what time of day you brush your teeth and actually see you doing it. Um, (laughs) This didn't happen in in earlier decades. Um, So there's meaning, manageability, connection, and then positive affect, and separately from that, negative affect. They're orthogonal. Positive and negative affect are independent factors; they're uncorrelated. And if you take those, uh, so positive would be how much joy do you experience, how much delight, how much pleasure, how much love, um, and the negative ones would be how much anxiety, how much hostility, and and jealousy, and so on associated with that particular object. Now you can see how those are mapping on directly to to the Big Five, and it's it. We never intended this to be so. It's just that the data coughed up this five-factor solution, and you can you can see now how you can link them. Openness to experience as a trait seems to link to uh, meaning, conscientiousness to manageability, extroversion to positive affect, and and to the um, uh, the um, uh, positiveness to uh, in your interactions with others, agreeableness um, with a sense of community, and neuroticism with negative affect. So there is, if not an isomorphism, at least these rhyme with each other quite nicely, and they they um, reinforce the notion that there may, may well be this link between the disposition the project and the outcome. As I say, we don't have enough empirical evidence to to claim that uh, the, the projects are the intermediary, but there's some really encouraging preliminary evidence. I look forward to getting some research, more research done there. Um, where do we get to? Well, the the
1: question that I had asked was the relation. Well, what free traits are and how they relate to the personal projects and stable traits.
0: Okay, so we we covered how we actually measure these and what scores come out of it, right? And as you might expect, well being is linked to having meaningful projects that are manageable, that have a sense of connection with others, and that generate more positive than negative affect. So it's it's very clear what those links should be, and it ends up that that is exactly the case. And to your point, while it may be difficult to change your neuroticism, although there's some evidence that there is more change in personality available than was thought of even 10 years ago, that's an active research area, it is certainly possible to change your projects. And we have a whole bunch of techniques that we can use uh, that uh, allow you to reformulate your projects, uh, to reconstrue them using Kelly's terms, to cut them down in size, to enlarge them if needs be, and 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 so on, to enhance the meaning, the manageability, the connection, and the affective differential. There's one step I need to take before I get to free trades, and that is the notion of a core project. And here's where again I've got such admiration for some philosophers who who have. Dealt with this um, in ways that I think are are profound. Bernard Williams has developed the notion of ground projects. Um, we were totally independent of each other; though so we overlapped for a time, but um, his his notion of ground projects he describes as one which gives um, grounding to your whole life. And without which, you may wake up and wonder if it's worth carrying on at all. And that was a very profound statement to me. A ground project is one which, were you not to have it, may lead you to question whether it's worth carrying on at all. So that's an existential project core projects, they matter deeply to you. A core project, in contrast to a ground project, those are ground projects, but a core project to me is not quite as existentially uh, compelling, though it could be for sure. But it's also, it's something which gives your life meaning and which can sometimes come up and lick your right elbow without anybody noticing it. I think there's a core project walking into your into your studio right now. Yeah, a core had,
1: project ready to go outside.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, And we often live our lives in the pursuit of core projects. My major proposition in project analytic theory or social ecological model is that human flourishing is contingent on the sustainable pursuit of core projects in our lives. Not the completion of core projects because then we may just, now what? But it's a sustainable pursuit of core projects. Now, that core project may mutate, may change, may become embellished, may become enriched, Um, uh, but it is the same project that you're pursuing that gives meaning to you in, in your life, and and <clears throat> if manageable, and if it doesn't weigh you down too much with negative affect, um, is is the source of your potential flourishing. Now, often our behavior seems to be unpredictable and strangely enigmatic to other individuals, and um, it may be that you've seen. Um, Jerry a guy who's um, uh, every month the last three months he's been at weekly get-togethers in his in his um, neighborhood he's at every party he brings extra bottles uh, he's with his wife he uh, fully engaged obviously an extrovert all of his outward and visible signs are the decent extrovert. But it may be, and in this case, I use this as an example in the book, that Jerry is actually not at all gregarious. He's not at all extroverted. In fact, quite the opposite. He's a rather neurotic introvert. But he has a core project in his life that was occasioned by a life event. And that life event was his wife is dying of cancer. And it's imminent And for the rest of her life, she wants, and he wants, to do what matters most to her, which is connecting with people. And so his seemingly, what the hell is Jerry doing? He never used to go out. He hasn't changed in extroversion. He's pursuing a core project, which entails that he adopt a free trait of acting extrovertedly in order to advance a core project of doing everything I can for Naomi before she passes on. And so that would be perhaps a dramatic example, but not not a rare example of how complex, and, you know, frankly, how noble individuals could be. Well, why do we engage in free trait behavior at all? I think there are two reasons. We engage in free traits like being more, extroverted than we really are or being more introverted than we really are as card-carrying extroverts, we adopt those for two main reasons that I can think of. Um, We do them for professionalism and we do them out of love. And out of professionalism, there are many people who just could not carry out their jobs unless they engage in free trade behavior. Uh, The somewhat shy, introverted person who is in sales. Why they got there is because they're brilliant and they're very, very good in the substantive area uh, that they're selling. But it's they, he has to act out of character every single day. If it advances the core project, doing well in my job, you can do that. A very frequent example I see is, is with respect to the trait of agreeableness and people who are strategically engaged in free-traded, disagreeable behavior. Uh, An example of this would be a woman who uh, has been rebuffed time and time again in trying to get her mother, who is showing increasingly obvious signs of Alzheimer's, into a care facility. And there are problems with it. She meets a blank wall. And for all of August, she ends up being... Absolutely direct, rude, pushy, and disagreeable because she has a core project of helping mom get settled at last. So these are, I call them free traits because they're adopted. They take advantage of social, sociogenic scripts. We're all aware of how to act like an extrovert. You may say, "You know, yeah, I know how to, I know how to act. I know how to act as an introvert. I even know how to act neurotic." But <laughs> I'm not disposed to do that. But if I need to act neurotic in order to get the attention of somebody, I'll do that. And this raises a thousand interesting questions philosophically. Um, it goes to the whole question of, of sincerity and and whether a person is being genuine when they are engaged in these behaviors. Uh, And I think that uh, there are three kinds of fidelity. There's fidelity to your biogenic nature. You're doing it because it feels right. Sociogenic fidelity, where you're showing adherence to social cultural norms, and you're doing what one ought to do. And ideogenic um, where you are doing what matters to you as a core project. And oftentimes we, we fight with different areas and field of personality psychology. And When I was younger and possibly to read, uh, I used to scoff at psychoanalytic theory. And as you know, and I've listened to some of your lectures with psychoanalysts, it's fascinating there's been quite a resurgence of particularly with neuro psychoanalytic theory. Um, but it, it struck me one day that even though I came out of this from George Kelly and people as scientists and specialists and so on, and created this biogenic sociogenic and, and ideogenic sources of the cell, it sure smells an awful lot like id, ego and super ego doesn't it the biogenic it, the the sociogenic superego constraining you in the basis of what's right to do and the idiogenic ego trying to battle these twin forces and uh, in order to uh, uh, exact a life of, of personal meaning so uh, ours is is very much uh ecumenical approach to human personality where uh, as I get older I, I appreciate the insights of of um, of scholars on many different disciplines. Hmm.
1: It's funny. That's one of the, I mean, I have many questions that I didn't have a chance to ask, but one of them was your thoughts on, on psychoanalysis. But since we've ended with core projects and flourishing, I'm wondering if you think that there is room for a practical takeaway from this conversation for our listeners, if there's, simple or actionable advice on how to prune uh treat I started saying treat and then prune at the same time. Treat, prune, or, like truning, or think yeah. about pruning. Uh treat, prune or, or think about personal projects to improve well being.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um I, I've written a fair bit about this and some practical steps, but let me just summarize a few of them. Some of them are are, are really pretty basic. Um it's possible. Uh, some are really wild, uh, so I'll start with the more plausible ones, and then I'll end on a couple of wild ones. Um, the um, once we've established whether your projects are meaningful, manageable, connected, have an excess of uh, positive over negative affect, we're in a position, uh, particularly if you're scoring low on some of those. Um, we're in a position where we can suggest ways in which each of those can be enhanced. Um, For example, manageability is one of the easiest. There are all sorts of time management programs that are available. Um, You can, uh, and uh, apps that will remind you when projects are due. And there's, there's a whole domain of project analytic work that deals with procrastination. Uh, and there is a, a, a whole set of therapeutic techniques. One of my students, Tim Pitchell, has spent his life basically studying procrastination and what you could do about it. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and there's a philosopher at Stanford who's written extensively on on, uh, on procrastination. and
1: Michael Bratman?
0: Yeah. I, uh, no, um, I, I'm blanking on, on his name. But he's he's emeritus now, and um,
1: oh oh I know who you're thinking of John Perry.
0: Yes, John Perry. That's a, I interviewed I, him
1: about procrastination. I should no. have I should have guessed that. Yeah.
0: Who have you not interviewed? <laughs> <laughs> this is there him. are there are a lot of people. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know you had interview John Perry.
1: Well, yeah, he's quite a character.
0: Jim and John Perry have I think they've been in communication for years, and uh, yeah, it's. Um, it's it's any of the recent books on procrastination have offered for those who suffer from it, including me, um, some really practical steps that you, that you could take. Incidentally, I created the first study on procrastination before anyone else had studied it, but I was never able to finish it and get it published. <laughs> Some of the people I talked to did. They actually used PPA, uh, personal projects analysis, and they got it published. And the fellow (laughs) who published this article, uh, I had my students work on it, but we never published anything because I procrastinated. Uh, So I could at least make the case that I had a kind of phenomenological validity to what I was doing on this. But uh, that doesn't help your curriculum vitae. Uh, but he wrote, the, the fellow called Clary Lay um, wrote an article called uh, At Last My Article on Procrastination. And I thought it was a great article. And uh, you thanked me for some suggestions and so on, and adopted personal projects analysis in it. And uh, I thought, I still haven't. Written up that paper, so one of these days I thought I I might write a paper called Procrastination: A Case of a Little L, L-I, Capital L-I-T-T-L-E, Too late. Oh wow, <laughs> that would be fun. That would be fun to it do. It would be. Yeah. yeah, maybe my last paper, but it would be it would be it would only be so symbolic if I was just ready to hit send to the publisher, and as my wife says you would drift off. That's how we talk about the final frontier. So we'll see. Stay tuned. It would be a
1: great posthumous release.
0: Wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, Brian, this has been so fun. I mean, I have really wanted to do uh, an episode on personality for a long time. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do one.
0: I was delighted to do it with you. The questions are incredible. And let me just say that I'm... Not the typical personality psychologist, uh, and so much of what I have talked about is sufficiently idiosyncratic that other personality researchers might say that's not what we're doing. And so you may want to get some of them, and I can tell you who the the really the, the really profound personality psychologists are, and you can interview them to correct everything I've told you today. <laughs>
1: Well, I I wouldn't be looking for corrections, but I would love those recommendations because I am always who, I mean, there are lots of people that I haven't interviewed, but I am sort of like running out of the big names that I'd really love to talk to. So that would be great. I'll pass this on
0: to you. Yep.
1: Okay. Thanks again so much.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Hold on. If you haven't
1: subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Airharm.